All right. Well, my beloved brothers and sisters, if you have a Bible, go ahead and take it, and let's turn together to the Gospel of Matthew. You see it on the screen this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, a short passage of Scripture for us this morning, but lots for us to talk about in these few verses. Now, as you're turning there, let me kind of share with you, when you take everything down to its foundation you really discover what is at the heart of something. You discover what what matters the most. Uh, You discover really what it is built on. If you take something down to its foundation, you really get at the heart of what matters in that thing. And, And this is true really for lots of things. But let's take, for instance, something that is very pertinent to our city right now. Let's take something like the National Hockey League. All right, so we all know What's about to happen starting tomorrow here in our city, our very own uh, Vegas Golden Knights are about to play for the the Stanley Cup. And so we collectively say, go Knights, go. Uh, So we're excited about that, ready for that. But let's think about the National Hockey League. Now, we know this is an exciting time for our city when it comes to that uh, as we're playing for the Stanley Cup. Now, here's what's uh, interesting about the, the National Hockey League, all right? They have teams in 31 cities, right? They also have teams in two countries, The National Hockey League has a website, a cable TV network, a satellite radio station, and it is a sport that is covered by news outlets across the world. For any NHL team, you can buy hats. We've got those. You can buy window stickers. We've got a couple of those. You can buy shirts. We've got some of those. You can buy jerseys. You can buy hockey pucks and lots, lots more, right? Now, yet for all the media and merchandise, And for all the cities and nations represented, when you take everything down to its foundation, the heart of the National Hockey League is this, the game itself, right? The ice and the skates and the competition to score more goals than your opponent. This is the heart. This is what is most important, and this is what it's built on. So now another thing that we want to make sure we talk about the heart of and really the focus of our time this morning is that if you take Christianity all the way down to its foundation, you also discover the heart of the faith and what is most important to us. You you find out what we are built on as followers of Jesus. And this is really where our verses take us today. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, we're going to drive at what it is that that our faith is built on. So with that, let's stand together. Let's hear God's word. And let's hear Jesus point us to why it is that he came to earth. This is the word of God from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. The Bible says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray together as we approach these verses. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we are so very thankful for the Bible. 
We're thankful that your word is true and it is so very trustworthy. And your word is such a treasure to us. God, we thank you for the truth that if we want to hear from you, we are not left in the dark on how to hear from you. We don't have to be confused on how to hear from you. God, if we want to hear from you, all we simply need to do is open the pages of your word. God, we thank you that in your word you have revealed your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in your word you have revealed exactly what you are doing in this world, what you have had planned from before the foundations of the the earth were even laid. And Father, we thank you that in your word you point us to your astounding grace demonstrated in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would remind us yet again, shape our lives by the heart of our faith, the death and resurrection of our Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the Bible. Guide us in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys have a seat again. Thank you. Now, there are some places in the Bible that just stand right in front of you, grab your attention, and say, this is the point. This is what is important. This is what matters. These are some of those verses that stand right in front of us, call for our attention and say, hey, this is what this is all about. Just in case we're tempted to forget, Just in case we're tempted to get distracted or just in case we're tempted to maybe look in other directions. When we think about being a follower of Jesus, when we think about our faith, when we think about Christianity, these verses help to remind us, hey, guys, gals, this is what this is all about. This is why this exists. This is why we do what we do. So what we see is there's a main idea, I believe, that we can drive at in these verses of Scripture. And the main idea is this, the heart of Christianity, everything that is built on, the heart of Christianity is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart of Christianity. It's not about trying to be good people. It's not about trying to, to, you know, live our lives a certain way, although that's part of being a follower of Jesus. But when you drive at the heart and the foundation of what it is to be a Christian, That heart is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to see a scene play out where Jesus begins to tell his followers about it. And one of his followers speaks up and says, no, it should not be this way. And Jesus is going to have some strong words to say back to this follower. Now, as we dive in, let's do this. I want to bring another place uh, up for us on the screen if we can. Another place in the Bible that if you've got your Bible open, go ahead and turn with me. Further on in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, We're going to look at a couple of different places from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, one now and one later. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want us to see uh, a few things that that are important because here you have the Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ in an area known as Corinth. And one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to remind them of something, all right? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 4, 
I'm sorry, starting in verse one, down through verse four. Paul writes this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul is reminding them of something. Then in verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, what it is that Paul is reminding them of, he is reminding them of what is the most important thing that he has preached to them. He said, if you boil everything else down, if you distill everything else down, what matters most that I have preached to you is this. And he goes on. In verse three, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And this is that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, the death of Jesus. Verse four, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. Now, I want us to look there before we jump into these verses because we see all throughout the Bible as the Old Testament anticipates it and as the New Testament fulfills it. And we see all the way throughout the New Testament that if we boil down our faith to its most essential elements, what we're going to constantly come back to is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, what matters most is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we're gonna see here now as we make our way back to Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus is going to begin to set his face toward this reality of his crucifixion. And there is nothing that's going to stop him from fulfilling the mission that his father has given him. Nothing is going to stop him. So Paul reminds them of the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We come back to Matthew chapter 16 and we're reminded of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, so let's look at our verses here in Matthew chapter 16. And let's see Jesus very plainly tell us why he has come. In verse 21 of Matthew 16, again, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In verse 21 of Matthew 16, Jesus states very plainly why it is that he has come. Jesus understands that not only a part of his mission, but the critical part of his mission, the significant part of his mission has not yet occurred. But it's building, his life is building to this point in time when he would lay down his life and then be raised from the dead. Now, we've already begun to see this conflict be kind of building between the religious leaders and Jesus, right? We've kind of seen some run-ins between the two of them where there are disagreements about how we interpret the law, how we understand things in the law, and Jesus sets some things straight, and we see this conflict beginning to build between our Savior and the religious leaders, and this conflict is just going to continue to brew and to build, and finally it's going to, to reach a tipping point where they finally come to a point and they say, he's got, he's got to go. We have to do something about this man. He's causing too much trouble. But the amazing thing about this is, well, before they reach their point of saying, we have to do something about Jesus, Jesus already knows what's going to happen. Jesus is fully anticipating this, but what he is doing now with his disciples is he is saying, the time is going to come when I go to Jerusalem 
and I am killed at the hands of these religious leaders. Now, just for a moment, let's set ourselves back in the mindset of these early followers of Jesus. Now, what have we said the entire time is the primary message of the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew, writing to a group of people who have a predominantly Jewish background. Matthew is saying, in no uncertain terms, that all of the promises that are contained in the Old Testament about a Savior and a Redeemer and a Messiah and a Christ, that's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. All of these promises about a king who would come and rule over God's people, who would rule in God's kingdom, that's Jesus. But now understand that a lot of the mindset that people had that day was that when the Messiah would finally come, one of the things that he would do is he would literally, physically sit on a throne and he would rule over God's people much like a strong and mighty military ruler, much like a strong and mighty king would. And so the last thing that anybody would be expecting to hear from the Messiah, from the king, is for him to pull them aside and say, hey guys, I need to let you know that I'm about to die soon. I'm going to be killed. What? That, that's, that's obviously what they had to be thinking, right? Come again? Because what we had in mind is that you were going to go and you were going to go into Jerusalem and take over the throne and establish yourself as the king that we've all been expecting. That's, that's how this is supposed to go, right? But Jesus instead takes them aside and says, no, I'm about to be killed. My life is going to be handed over into the hands of the religious leaders, the ones who've been opposing me. Now, brothers and sisters, in the minds of those who would be hearing this, this is not how a Messiah should talk. This is not how a king should talk. This is not how a mighty anointed one should talk, right? I mean, can you imagine in a, in a typical military setting where the general pulled all of his men together he said, guys, I know you've been with me so far and the mission is unfolding just according to plan, but I need, need to let you know that my time is about to expire and I'm gonna go into the capital city and they're gonna kill me. How would you react? Come again? Are, are we done? Is, is this you resigning? Are, are we finished? What's, what's going on here, right? What's happening here? But Jesus tells them, I'm, I'm about to go. I have to die. And so who speaks up? Well, who spoke last week? Peter, right? Who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the son of God. And how does Jesus respond to that? Well done, Peter. As flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter gets commended by Jesus. And then Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And we talked last week about how God is going to use Peter in an incredible way to build his church, right? And so Peter has got to be sky high at this point in time, right? He's been commended by the master. Jesus has said, you're the man, right? And so then Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, the time is going to be very soon where I'm going to be killed. So who speaks up? Well, Let's look. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay? Now, let's not let that word fall lightly on us. This is Peter strongly and sternly saying to Jesus, Jesus, right? 
No, th this should not be. So, so Peter is all messed up inside, and, and what he is hearing from his Savior does not compute for him, and so Peter has to say something about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, Peter, I would imagine just like last week, this week as well, he speaks on behalf of the disciples. I, I can't imagine that Peter is the only one who feels this way and who thinks this way, but God love him. Peter's the one who steps forward and he just speaks first, right? Last week, it goes well for him. This week, not quite so much, right? Peter says, this is not how a Messiah should talk. This is not how a conquering king should talk. This is not how an anointed one should talk. What kind of Christ would talk about being killed and laying down his life? What is happening here? So Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus turns around, and he rebukes Peter. Look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 23. And just try to put yourself in Peter's place for a moment. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, hang on. Is this not the same Peter who just a few verses before? Jesus says, well done, and he commends him for seeing that, that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. Is this not the same Peter that Jesus just said, I'm going to build my church on you, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? And then Peter pulls Jesus aside after Jesus has revealed to his disciples that he is about to be killed. He rebukes Jesus, and how does Jesus respond? He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine how the wheels are spinning in Peter's mind? I would be wondering, what is happening here? What is going on? What is taking place here, right? How confused, I would imagine, Peter could have been in that moment. In verse 23, Jesus says three things to Peter. He says, number one, get behind me, Satan. Number two, he says, you are a hindrance to me. Number three, he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's look at all three of those just for a couple of moments. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I do not believe that Jesus is saying that Peter is Satan. I don't believe that Jesus is saying that, that they are the same, okay? I don't think that's what's happening here. But in fact, I believe Jesus is using a very strong and very dramatic way to make his point. Because we've already seen earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Satan has come and he has attempted to hinder Jesus from his mission, right? We saw where he tempted him. And differently than when Adam was tempted in Genesis chapter 3 and failed, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 is tempted, but he never fails. He never yields to temptation. Again, proving and demonstrating that he is the second, the better, the true Adam, the one who is to come. But we've seen that, that Satan's mission the entire time is to try to hinder the work and the mission of Jesus. And so when Jesus hears from his chief disciple this rebuke that he should not go forward with this idea of being killed and being raised from the dead, Jesus understands that something bigger is at play here. And he wants to make this very clear, that where Satan would try to hinder the work of God, Jesus will have nothing of that. So he says, get behind me, Satan. 
Jesus takes this chance to state that even though Peter might believe that he is looking out for Jesus, he is actually working against the mission of our Savior by trying to talk him out of being killed. Jesus also says, you are a hindrance to me. Now again, here's what's interesting because a couple of verses before, Jesus has called Peter the rock. and says, I'm going to build my church on you. Now Jesus says, you are a hindrance to me. And the image that is brought to mind there is a stumbling block. And so he uses this construction imagery on both sides. And on one side, he says, I'm going to build my church on you as you proclaim the good news of the gospel. And then when, Jesus, when Peter tries to hinder Jesus and talk him out of being killed, he now uses this image of a stumbling block. You're a hindrance to me. Then he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's what's amazing about what's going on with Peter, what's going on with Jesus is that even though Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he still does not yet completely, fully and clearly see the reason why Jesus has come. But instead, Peter is still thinking in terms of his own understanding. So Jesus instead is going to clear this up. Here's something important that we need to make sure we understand. What is happening with Jesus particularly as his life is building to his death and his resurrection, this is all part of God's plan. The death of Jesus is not an unfortunate end to an otherwise good life. But the death of Jesus is the Father's way of redeeming his people and bringing redemption to the entire world. The death of Jesus is not an unfortunate end to an otherwise good life. But this is the Father's plan to redeem his people and bring redemption to the entire world. Jesus is making it very clear why he has come. The reason Jesus reacts so strongly to Peter in verse 23 is because he knows that he has come on a mission. And he's referred to this mission all throughout not only the Gospel of Matthew, but we see it referred to throughout all of the four Gospels. And in the Gospel of John particularly, Jesus tells us this over and over. In John chapter 6, this is what Jesus says about his mission. He said that he came down from heaven not to do his will, but instead to do the will of his Father. In John chapter 4, Jesus said that his food, what he sustains on, is to do the will of the one who sent him. Jesus has come on a mission and this mission is leading somewhere and where it is leading helps us to see the very heart of this mission. The reason that Jesus will not have any part of Peter's rebuke, the reason that Jesus will not allow Satan, the enemy to hinder him, the reason that Jesus will not stumble over this stumbling block is that there is nothing that is going to stop Jesus from laying down his life and there's nothing that's going to stop Jesus from being raised from the dead. His death and his resurrection are the pinnacle point of his mission here on earth. Nothing is going to get in the way. Jesus is revealing this to his disciples in a way that is absolutely blowing their minds. It's overwhelming them. Peter doesn't know what to do. So the only thing that he can do is say, no, no. Why, why, why would this be? But what Jesus is doing for them then and what Jesus is doing for us now is he is pointing our minds, pointing our hearts back to the foundation and the heart of our faith. Everything 
that we believe everything that God is doing, everything that is happening in history revolves around one reality, revolves around the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Everything is defined by, understood by, built on, measured by this death and resurrection of Jesus. This is no small moment in history, but brothers and sisters, this is everything. Everything is built on this. And so where the disciples don't quite fully understand this yet, Jesus is making sure that at one time, they will. This is something important that we need to make sure we understand. Everything God is doing in the world hangs on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything that God is doing in the world hangs on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the foundation of who we are. Now, why is that true? Why is that such a big deal? Well, we've done this many times as a church family, but let's, let's do it again. Let's take our minds back to Genesis chapters one through three. Genesis chapters one and two, God creates the world. God creates Adam and Eve. He looks at his creation and how does he describe it? He says it is good, good. And if everything ended at the end of Genesis chapter two, it would be like every Disney movie that we've ever seen where they all lived happily ever after, right? But does it end in Genesis chapter two? No, it does not. In fact, we're just getting started, right? Genesis chapter two gives us a glimpse into the wonder and beauty of God's creative power and work and gives us a glimpse into what we will see in the other bookend at the end of Revelation, what our hearts long for that day when Christ returns and we are with him forever. But in Genesis chapter three, we see the reality of temptation. We see the reality of Adam and Eve giving in to that temptation. And we see the reality of sin entering into the world, right? And because of this reality, everything is ruined. The greatness of enjoying unending fellowship with God has been removed now and a separation between God and man is introduced now. Death is now a reality because of what we see in Genesis chapter three and not only a physical death, but even worse than that, a spiritual death. Everything has been ruined. And here's what's amazing about this. Every bit of evil, darkness, sadness can ultimately be traced back to this moment in time. Genesis chapter three, High school shootings, divorces that devastate families, cancer that takes mothers when they're in their 30s, friendships that get torn apart because of conflict, misunderstandings between husbands and wives. All of these dark realities, all of the sin, all of the sickness, all of the sadness, all of the conflict, all the evil in this world can be traced back to this fateful moment in history in Genesis chapter three, where everything, everything falls apart. But yet in Genesis chapter three, we are not left without hope. Because in Genesis chapter three, God makes a promise, even on the heels of cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent, he makes a promise that one day, one day a savior would come. One day, a redeemer would come. In the face of this ruin, God has a plan. Now, what's amazing is that this is a plan that was in place even before 
Genesis chapter three. And this is a plan that would be fulfilled by none other than God himself. And this plan will take us ultimately straight to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because sin will have to be dealt with. Sin will have to be dealt with. This darkness, this evil, this sadness, this sickness, this death, it will have to be dealt with. The author of sin will have to be dealt with. The enemy, Satan, will have to be dealt with. The consequences of sin, death and judgment, they will have to be dealt with. They will have to be reckoned with in order for God to redeem his people, in order for God to bring redemption to this world. Someone is going to have to reckon with this reality. And the question is, who? Who? The prophets, they said, one day he's going to come. We don't fully understand it. We don't fully see it, but one day he's going to come. Who is going to deal with this reality? Who is going to face up to the fact that sin has to be dealt with? And the answer, I just heard somebody whisper it. This is what I love about a small church. Jesus will. Jesus will. Why Jesus? Because no one else could. This is what Peter helped us to see last week, right? No one else is uniquely qualified to do what it is that Jesus has done because no one else is like Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. So in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus will deal with the reality of facing sin, facing darkness, facing the enemy, redeeming God's people and bringing redemption to the world. Now I wanna share very quickly as we draw to a close, a couple more places in scripture. Let's bring the first one up. It's out of the book of Hebrews. <laughs> if you have your Bible open, turn with me to Hebrews chapter two. And let's just see how the Bible speaks of the importance of the death of Jesus. Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 through 17. Why will Jesus not let Peter hinder him? Why will Jesus not let Satan hinder him? Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 give us insight into this reality. Since therefore, the Bible tells us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we share in flesh and blood. He himself, that's Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, what did he do? He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. But not only that, Look at what he does in verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us too. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, a very important word in the Bible that speaks to the fact that there is a deity whose justice and wrath must be dealt with and must be appeased. And in order for that deity's wrath and justice to be appeased, an offering must be made. And so when the Bible speaks of the propitiation of Jesus, what it is saying is that when he lays down his life, he has done everything necessary to atone for our sins, and appease and satisfy the justice and the wrath of the Father. 
But not only that, in his death, Jesus destroys the one who holds the power of death. That's Satan himself. Jesus has disarmed the enemy in his death. Jesus took on flesh and blood, sharing in that experience, just like we live in this experience. And Jesus laid his life down. Jesus steps into this world. Jesus takes on flesh. Jesus dies, and in his death, he destroys the one who has the power of death. What is so important about the death of Jesus, why Jesus will not let Peter get in the way, while, why Jesus is undeterred in his mission, is because in the death of Jesus, death dies. Sin is dealt with, and the enemy is defeated. Jesus will have none of any idea, any talk of him not dying. Jesus is focused on his mission. Final place I want us to go. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 26. What is so important about the resurrection of Jesus? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 26, Paul starts us off really in a way kind of in Genesis chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, he says, for as in Adam all die, that's the result of Adam's sin, right? That's the curse that we inherit because we come in that line. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, his resurrection, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verses 22 and 23 are very, very important for us in, in, in that passage of scripture. We died in Adam, in Christ we are made alive. Christ in his resurrection, winning the battle over death, the eternal life that he achieved and accomplished in his resurrection is shared with all who belong to him by faith. The eternal life that our Savior gives is given to all who are found in Christ by believing in him. So what's so important about the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that without the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have no salvation. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have no redemption. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have no rescue. You have no good news. You have no gospel. You might have a Christianity, but it won't mean anything. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no atonement. There is no forgiveness. There is no being rescued from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. There's none of that without the death and resurrection of Jesus. We stand collectively as followers of Christ today, and we stand collectively with all the followers of Christ down through time. We stand on the death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We aim to know nothing among one another except for Christ and him crucified. That is our message. That is our song. That is our victory. That is our hope. As I heard one pastor say one time, he said, we have one song to sing and we're gonna sing it till we die. And that's the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. That's it. We may not sing it well, 
We may not sing it all that creatively, but you better believe we will sing it as loud and as consistently and as joyously and as raucously as we possibly can. We will make our joyful noise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, because we stand on his death and his resurrection. Amen? Amen. We got nothing else. But here's the good news. We don't need nothing else. That's enough. That's more than enough. Now, here's the thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus, come on. Come on. Today, come to him by faith. Know the wonder of forgiveness of sin. Know the wonder of his power over death and know the wonder of the eternal life that he gives to all who belong to him. In a moment, we're going to take communion together and we're going to remember the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, the body broken and the blood shed for us and be reminded yet again as we take these elements of the great good news of the gospel. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would love to talk to you about what it means to follow him. And we would love to celebrate the day when you too come to the communion table with us.